I'm Ruth Sturkey and welcome to Money Expresso, no froth conversations exploring money and life. Money is a story, an energy, a source of happiness and well-being, as well as being a source of fear and anxiety. Many of us struggle to see that money is just a means to an end and that the decisions we make and the habits we build around money can change our life and the lives of others. Why are so many of us inhibited when it comes to talking about money? That's what I'd like to explore. Listen as my guests from all walks of life share their stories and how money has impacted their journey. My hope is these shared experiences will help you think differently about money and ultimately make better money and life decisions. Hello and welcome to episode 28 of Money Expresso with my guest today, Neil Bage. I think Neil is my new favourite person in financial services. I love the way he tells his story of his journey from being a lifeguard and compare at Butlins in Bognor Regis to becoming an expert on human behaviour. You will hear from the way he speaks that he has a knack for bridging complex behavioural science theory with a real world understanding and application. He's also served as a chief behavioural officer, yes, such a thing exists, and was the founder of a multi-award-winning behavioural technology business before co-founding Shaping Wealth, a platform designed to transform the human experience of money. Neil's really eloquent, he's very deep thinking, and he's got some really refreshing views on the direction of financial services. He also shares his experience of real success and a deeply personal story to illustrate the beauty of contentment and the yin and yang of life. Neil, it's a very warm welcome. Thank you. It is an honour to be on here. You know, Ruth, I've listened to this podcast. I've listened to many episodes and there's some podcasts you kind of go, oh, I wish I was a guest on there because it's a really cool conversation. And this is one of them. So Trust me, the honour is all mine. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Thank you very much. I'm dead chuffed. Um, Now, just so um, many people who work within financial planning, uh, financial services know who you are, but we'll also have a number of listeners who who perhaps don't. So could you possibly just kick us off by giving us a nutshell to your journey to founding Shaping Wealth, please? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, gosh, a nutshell. <laughs> uh, I love that word. It's such a loaded word. Um, so, so let me do it in a really, really quick way. I left school, studied um, to be a PE teacher and fell in love with sports psychology and human biology, more so human biology or physiology. And that led to an, a, a passion which is still with me, which is how the human brain works. So I've always had a fascination with how we as a species navigate the world that, that, that we live in. I left and decided I didn't want to be a PE teacher and needed to get away from the, the town I was um, born and raised in, not for any reason other than I needed to go and try and find myself. And, and I found myself on the south coast of England. I worked for uh, rank leisure, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Mm. And and then I, I, I just start meeting new people. And one of them was um, the, the manager for an admin team at a company in Southampton called Scandia, Scandia Life. Mm-hmm. I'm sure many people listening will, have re- mm. will remember that company. Great, 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 great company to work for. And I worked there for quite a long time, working my way up to um, the head of strategy and realized throughout this entire journey that, you know what, I think we're doing it wrong. I don't think we put the human at the heart of the conversations that we're having about money. And, and it always rubbed me up kind of the wrong, wrong way. And so I, I left. I worked for other big FTSE 100 style companies and all the time, the same 
issue was there. We're not really getting to know the customer properly. And so I thought, you know what, Neil, put your money where your mouth is. And I left and set up my first ever behavioral consultancy. And it was a, a, a moment in my life that I will look back on with just nothing but fondness. It was hard, hard work. <laughs> but I started to do the things that I knew we needed to do. I started researching human behavior and money decisions. And and that then led me to setting up a company called BIQ, uh, which ended up, I left there only recently, is a multi-award winning behavioral insight technology platform. And I, I founded that and left there about a year ago and started working with um, two supremely talented people, Brian Portnoy and Joy Leary, who were both based in the US, um, both you know, PhDs both work in the field of human behavior. Joy is a clinical psychologist. And the three of us have always kind of gelled and, and realized that, you know what, it's not necessarily about the insight. It's about giving people the ability to, to understand who they are at a human level and how they navigate the world around them. And that's at a very, very high level. And so we founded Shaping Wealth together and it's been going for about a year and it is bonkers busy. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, we're meeting so many great people and we're managing to have many great conversations and um, long may it continue. Wow, that's been quite a journey. And it, it's really interesting that, that you notice very early in your career trajectory that within financial services, we kind of seem to forget often, don't we, that we're talking to human beings with all our wonderful human behaviours and frailties and habits. Um, but nobody seems to have really got to grips with this. I and mean, I kind of sense that tide is slowly starting to turn. And it's probably people like you, Neil, that have been particularly um, um, in, informative in, in that actually happening. But what was it when you were working for the likes of Scandia that kind of frustrated you, that made you think somehow we're not really communicating properly with clients, if, if that indeed was your thought? Yeah, it, 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 kind, of, it, it kind of was, Ruth. And, and I don't think it was the fault of the industry you know i, I want to kind of make that clear i think it was the f it, it was just that the field of behavioral insight behavioral science or behavioral finance wasn't advanced enough to really understand people and mm. money they said you know it, you can go all the all the way back to the to the 70s late 70s with kahneman and tversky you know and and look at the work that they did around behavioral finance and say, yeah, but we have known this since the, the 70s. But actually, the field of psychology was really all about putting people in boxes, mm. fill in a questionnaire. And what we'll do is we'll put you in one of five boxes. And when you're in box one, it means that you typically behave like this or you're one of these people. And it's so, so restrictive mm. of how we actually are as a species that actually it renders it useless. And that kind of theory, that that idea of, Get, let's give people a questionnaire and then say that you're one of 10 or one of five or one of three still persists to this day. But there's people like me and, and Brian and Joy who are kind of looking at it from a more positive psychology perspective that actually, do you know what? We're not irrational or I, I hate the word irrational, by the way. I try my hardest not <laughs> to get on a soapbox about this, but you know, we're not irrational. We're not wrong. We're not emotional. We're human beings. 
mm. and we are trying to do the best with the hand that life has dealt us we are you know we're emotional you know we're happy we're sad we're we're contemplative we're we're impulsive and often within seconds of each other that's what the beauty of being a human being is so for a long long time financial services have tried to put people into boxes and when they're in that box they design services around that box and people are going oh this doesn't feel like me mm. of course it doesn't because it's not capturing all the beauty of what being a human being is all about and so I recognized that a long time ago mm. and decided as I said um you know what I'm fed up of kind of playing you know of dancing to somebody else's tune here I'm going to do this myself I'm going to I'm going to figure out if what is going on in my head the idea I have the hypothesis I have is correct and thankfully without sounding braggy at all um I was right yeah you were I'm going to come back and talk more about you setting up your first business because having been through that experience myself, um, the, I have some insight into it. It'll be fascinating to hear about your yeah. journey. But to give us some context, what was your earliest memory of money when you were growing up, Neil? Uh, we, we never really talked about money. So I come from a family, my mum, my dad, and I've got four sisters so five children, mm. two of my sisters are older than me, two of my sisters are younger than me. And we never really talked about money when we were growing up. You know, I, mm. I mean, and I'll give you an example of how money was never really talked about. The game Monopoly was mm. banned in our house. Mm. So wow. we, we weren't allowed. I know it's right. It's what bizarre. did you do? <laughs> I, I have no idea. Um, but I'll tell you what's interesting. And, and, and I kick myself for this is we lost my mother only about a year ago and I, I've, I wished that whilst we had her, while she was alive, mm. I asked her that question. What was it about Monopoly that you hated so much <laughs> that, that when we got the board game out, she kind of went, no, you're not playing that because money causes arguments. Now, there's something oh. fundamental there, right, yeah. that I never, ever got to explore with my mum. Yeah. We just never really talked about it. It wasn't really a, a topic of conversation. And, you know, we never went without. We always seemed to have what we want. We always went on holidays, although never, ever abroad. I never went abroad until I was married and, and I went on my honeymoon to Austria. It was the first time in my life at the age of 21 that I had a passport. So we never yeah. went abroad, but we never, never, uh, we always had family holidays mm -hmm. all the time. But actually that had all of this has, as an adult, as a, I'm now 47, I kind of reflect a lot on my life and I realized that not having money conversations, not being able to play Monopoly mm. um, actually didn't equip me that well with, or, or it didn't give me the money skills I needed as I started to enter adult life and started to earn money and, and have a bit of disposable income that I could save. I didn't have the skills because I hadn't been exposed to that as a child. Mm. So I had to figure out a way of learning it. And I am ever thankful that I met my wife, Sandy. Sandy comes from a completely different family. She's Italian. They did talk about money. They talked about saving, investing, you know, your future. It's important about your future. Have a pension. Mm. Sandy, had a, Sandy had a pension when she was 18, and, you know, which is pretty much unheard of, right? Yeah. And, and so when I met her, she brought with me she brought into our relationship her money habits and I had 
very much unformed money habits. So I, I managed to morph myself into, into, into a person that she strongly influenced from a money perspective. And the position that we find ourselves in now, I will always say, is completely and utterly down to her money skills and what she taught me as an adult than anything that I picked up throughout my life as a, as a child in my family. That is interesting, isn't it? And there's a couple of things there. I think, firstly, what caused your mom to think money causes arguments? I mean, we, mm. we needn't go there because, I'm, you know, you, as you also said, you didn't really ever get the chance to discuss it with your mom, as I understand yeah, it. Sorry, right. sorry to hear you, you lost her so recently, too. And, <laughs> but also, for you, Neil, um, to be open to listening to Sandy and learning from her. And, and you're not falling into that trap, which I've seen over the years with clients, where you have one partner which says, oh, well, you know, he or she looks after the money I just spend. And it becomes mm. this, this almost unspoken thing, which becomes a, a point of challenge very often in the relationship. So it sounds of like course. Sandy did a great job on you. She did. And, and, and you know, she didn't. And, and this is such a skill she has just as a human being. She doesn't force an agenda on you. What she says is, this is my experience. This is the pros and the cons of my experience. And therefore, wouldn't it be good if we kind of did this thing? And what she does is she sells the story really well. Mm -hmm. And it just makes sense. Yeah. So you kind of go, oh, well, why not? So when we got married, we started to save money. I, I, re I will always remember putting £50 into a premium bond and thinking, oh, my goodness me, I'm never going to see that £50 ever again. And that initial feeling of, oh, so this is what saving feels like. You know? yeah. And uh, you know, when, I left, when I left the northeast of England to, to go south um, to, to find myself, I left with a bag of clothes and £75 in the bank. That was it. That was every. That was Neil Beige at that point in, in, in my existence. And if I look back now over the last 30 years and the journey I've been on, I, I'm a completely different person. Mm. And that is almost exclusively down to the close relationship that I have with, with Sandy and the skills outside of money too that she has brought to, to our relationship. I will... I, I can't tell you how grateful I am that she is um, by my side. Mm. What a wonderful picture you've painted. And, and to, to also have that, that recognition that uh, and it, it's amazing, isn't it, how we all evolve so much dependent upon our life experiences, the people we meet, the places we go, the things that we're exposed to. And I guess at the same time, our ability to actually absorb and listen to different opinions um that's right and uh yeah well i'll be and, and does sandy work in money as well no gosh not at all she's um she was a trained so she when she left school she trained to be a a, a hairdresser and then specialized as a, a gentleman's barber so mm. she she's she's done that for a, a long long time mm. um she currently works for she helps me out with some of my stuff and she works for her brother who is a professional musician who travels the world with his band and does a lot of the kind of the the back scenes admin mm. um for for that so she's she's a very talented lady she mm. can take turn her hand to anything mm. it's very annoying actually so. <laughs> you just hate her. 
<laughs> when was it, Neil? I understand that you did a stint, well, you mentioned uh, working for Rank. Um, mm. tell, tell me a bit about that, because I've got in my <laughs> mind that you're on a holiday camp, and I'm not sure whether that's far off the mark or not. That is absolutely bang on. Is it? Oh. Yeah. I. So um, I... When, so let me just backtrack to my leaving school studying to be a PE teacher. Yeah. As part as part of that process, I became qualified, had coaching qualifications in uh, football, hockey, basketball. Um, oh, I can't even remember now, but one of them was uh, swimming. Mm. So I was a, I qualified as a swimming teacher and a lifeguard. And so when I wanted to kind of go use this phase again, go and find myself and just figure out what I wanted to do in life, I saw. In fact, I didn't. My mum did. She saw an advert in the local newspaper that uh, Butlins in Bognor Regis, owned by Rank Leisure, um, were looking for seasonal lifeguards and swimming teachers. And it was literally a three-month stint. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know what? That might be a good idea just to get out the town, go somewhere, change my geography, and, and, and see what happens. And so I did and went there in a December, I think. Mm -hmm. And... March comes round. They say to me, Do you fancy staying on for the summer season? And I went, yes, maybe. Didn't really know. Was missing my family at the time. Mm. And then I went into a, a staff bar one night to get a, a sandwich, of course, and or and a pint. And I turned round and here is this beautiful Italian girl stood there. And kind of that rest is history. Oh, I ended up marrying her a few years right. later. Mm. And I... So I signed up for the summer season, but I'd become really close friends with the director of entertainment. Mm -hmm. And he just said to me one night, why are you a lifeguard? You should be on a stage. <laughs> and I said to him, in what, what way do you mean? Why, why do you think I should be on a stage? He said, because actually you're really good at, at talking to groups of people. You have this rapport with people. And I reckon that if you put that, if I put a microphone in your hand, and stood you on a stage in front of 3,000 people, you would do really well. And I went, I, I don't think I would. Um, I'll try it, though. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, up for it. I'm, I'm up for trying it. And I spent two years um, basically every night in front of 3,000 people with a microphone in my hand, running the main events, introducing all the celebrity acts, um, doing a little bit of DJing and stuff like that, which I loved. Mm -hmm. but, but that grounding mm. of being in front of 3000 people um on a big stage with a microphone every night for you know a hundred weeks yeah. was one of the best lessons i've ever had in out in, in how to engage with other human beings because you get everything you could imagine figuratively literally thrown at you whilst you're on that stage and, and, and so when somebody says, do you fancy doing a financial services conference for 400 <laughs> people you know, for any day of the week, yeah. any day of the week. So it was a great, a great part of my life, Ruth. And, mm. um, and of course, made greater by the fact that it's where I met Sandy. Yeah. What a, what a brilliant job. And so, God, I can just imagine, I'm imagining the crowds now as you, as you speak. And uh, that is a real way, I guess, to, to, to learn on your feet and be able to respond and be instinctive. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's a proper baptism of fire. You yeah. know, I mean, I remember I've had, I've had more abuse thrown at me, <laughs> and as in real brutal ab abuse. Mm. Initially, I mean, my accent 
my northeast accent has calmed down a lot. It was very strong when I first went down south, and I remember just being abused, as in as in almost bullied by people for being from the northeast. Mm. And 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 why have you come down here to take our jobs? Or you know, blah, all that type of rubbish. Yeah. But you know what? You listen, absorb, and 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 reflect, and you use all of these moments to grow as a person. And I, I wouldn't change not one second mm. of that experience. So you had this kind of real life study of human behavior. Yeah. And you, you mentioned it was a subject that you were already interested in. You, you obviously then left that at some point and you kind of um, moved into money. Tell mm. me about setting up BIQ. So you, you said something that resonated me that was something like, you know what, Neil, if you think you're any good at this, get on and do it type of, yeah. type of thing, which kind of gave you the nudge. Mm. Who, who did you feel you were going to be your clients and, and how were you going to go about kind of selling your wares? So I want of a better way of putting it. Yeah, that's a great, it's a great question. And the answer is I didn't have a clue at the <laughs> beginning. What I, knew, what I knew was, or what, what my vision was, was go out do do some proper academic research into a into a range of behavioral ideas i had mm-hmm. and and to see if they are true or not or whether i'm just it's just me being completely bonkers mm. and th- that research over a course of 3 years kind of proved a ton of stuff that one i was expecting but two was really like oh my god that's amazing i didn't know that wow so when i had all of this stuff together I remember one day looking at this going, oh, I don't, I don't know what to do with this. I have no idea what to do. How do I, is it, do I just write a series of white papers and sell them for 10 grand? Mm-hmm. Or do I just go on to the speaking circuit and talk about my findings, almost like a consultancy? And I can't remember who it was who said this to me, but it was a financial planner. And, and that, that person said to me, you need to make this into a software solution for financial planners. What do you mean? Well, why don't you turn the questions that you've asked in the research into questions that we can ask our clients and therefore reveal the same behavioral insight, but in relation to our clients? And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely, yes. And, and that was kind of where the, 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 the real idea, if you like, for BIQ was formed. Let's take all of this behavioral insight that we know exists and turn it into a gamified kind of um, tech solution like an app where any person in the world can answer questions about themselves and it reveals what's going on inside their brains. And that was the idea. And then it was only when we kind of had the software built did I start thinking, oh, how do I sell this now? Mm. How, do you pr- how do you price this? Do you do it? Is it annually? Is it monthly? Do you do it? And then that, that kind of rabbit warren of, how do you, you know, market and sell a tech solution to financial planners? That was a struggle too. And what you have to do is just land on what you think is the right choice and go with it and go with it with a, with a mindset of the ability, should you need to, to pivot and, and, and adapt. Um, and and that's, that's kind of where we got to. It was a, a, another using the using a, a, a phrase I've already used it was another baptism of fire mm. it, I wouldn't and I wouldn't change one second of that either 
And so when you were doing your research into behaviours, give, give us some examples of the type of things that you were researching. Let me tell you the most contentious one. Yeah. Um, f- from my Scandia days, I had a belief that a 10-question psychometric risk questionnaire isn't it. That's not the answer. Yeah. Because I knew that risk so so if you think about human beings right we are in essence we are three things we're, we're time travelers we're the only species on the planet that can go back forward and move ourselves back into the present in the in the blink of an eye we are storytellers we've got by for the last fifteen thousand years by telling stories so brian at, at shaping wealth uses a beautiful phrase we're not calculators we're storytellers and the third thing is we, we are risk takers Every single aspect of our life involves, to some degree, a risk. You know, eat, eating your dinner is a risk. Mm. Walking down the street is a risk. And what we do is we, we unconsciously process all of these experiences, and that's how we engage with the world. So I'm looking at financial risk and saying, how on earth can 10 questions tell me how I am going to behave or how I'm going to be, how I'm going to emotionally respond to my money journey as it happens from today, ten years hence, and something just didn't sit well with me about that. I think it's a great tool as a starter for ten, mm-hmm. but the way it was portrayed at the time was, this is this is it. Mm-hmm. This is the kind of the, the the golden egg. This is all you ever need. Ask these ten questions, and the client's risk profile, quote unquote, is sorted. And so the first bit of research I did was finding out whether that the, the, the hypothesis I had, which was a risk questionnaire isn't it, there is more, but what is more? Mm. Uh, so I did a, a whole ton of research on behaviors like loss aversion and probability neglect. In other words, how do we emotionally deal with loss compared to gain? How do we process uncertainty? Um, and as well as things like re- going really basic, like numeracy skills, testing people's numeracy skills. So saying to someone, what would you do if the market fell by 10% is a massive assumption. There's a massive assumption there that we, we, that people know what 10% means. Yeah. And we know from numeracy studies around the world that many people have terrible numeracy skills. So the way the questions are presented assumes re- decent reading level, decent comprehension, decent mathematical skills, understanding of probabilities, understanding of emotional responses and triggers, and a, a risk question, I just can't do that. So I wanted to figure out if I was right or wrong. And what, I, what, is, what my research over three years showed was actually risk is multi, underline, bold, italic. It is multifaceted. Mm. There are so many aspects to risk as a human being that Yes, a risk questionnaire is a great tool. It is to start the conversation, to understand the client, and to get them thinking about the risk associated with money. Right? It's a great starter for 10. But if you really want to understand the human being, how they navigate life, and the different levels and you know, the, the breadth and depth of risk that goes on in their brain, then you need to be using more than a risk questionnaire. And, and the answer to that, to wrap this up, 
isn't actually more tools. It's what we have been doing for the last 10, 15,000 years. It's all done through the art of conversation. Mm. It's about having better conversations about the things that matter. And, and, and if we adopt, and, and, and the research that I carried out kind of showed me a path for how to better engage with the human being sat opposite me when I'm in a financial planning meeting. Fascinating. And, you know, and, you know that's such cutting edge thinking because, you know, I think if we were to do a straw poll of financial advisors, financial planners in the UK at the present moment, the majority of people's risk um, assessments will probably involve broadly exclusively the use of one of the questionnaires that you've you've alluded to yeah yeah and and i th- i my observation with that and i'd be interested in your thoughts is that that very um uh kind of thoughtless and i don't mean that rudely mm. is is being driven by the compliance with the regulator that yeah. financial advisors feel the pressure from yeah. So, yeah. would that be how, how you found it too yeah, completely. I, I, I mean, I've said to financial planners who say to me, oh, I use this you know, X questionnaire provided by Y company. Mm. And I ask 10 questions and you know, you know the story. Mm. And, and, and I, I've often said to them, why? Yeah. And they stare back at you and they go, what do you mean why? <laughs> why, why do you use the questionnaire? Does that, do, do you use that to map that to investments? Oh, yes. Yeah, so, okay. Do, so you have a, a proper mathematical methodology then to take human emotion and human behavior and map that to you know to particular stocks and chairs and et cetera, et cetera. And they look blankly and they go, oh no, the, the other company does that for me. And mm-hmm. and you go, okay, so let me go back to the beginning. Why do you use this questionnaire? Because uh, and then ultimately through the kind of the, the oh uh, ooh, uh ooh moments, they end up with oh because compliance says I have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's never, never, ever. That is never the answer to how we enhance or elevate the experience that a client goes through when they come into our offices to talk about their financial life. Mm. Using compliance as our first kind of process step, that's, it's always going to result in people going, financial services is a bit dull. Mm. Oh, it's a bit boring. Mm. Oh, I had to fill in all of these forms. I had to tick all of these boxes, blah, blah, blah. That's not what people come to us for. You know, they, they have their dreams and their aspirations and they have their fears and their anxieties and, and what we're there for. And by the way, we are in an incredibly privileged position. We really are because as financial planners, we get to engage with another human being and talk to them about the person they want to become. Mm-hmm. That's a really personal conversation. It's so personal. And to allow us into that, we should never take that for granted. And if the first part of that, you know, the, the hurdle of trust, if you like, is I hear you, but now I need you to fill in 20 questions. Yeah. Yeah. It's like you're falling at the first hurdle. Yeah. You, you yeah. really are. And, that's good. and then when you ask them questions like, what would you do if the, the stock market fell? The answer to the question is, I have no damn idea what I would do. Mm-hmm. So don't ask me to predict my future behavior because that's not how humans work at all. Yeah, I agree. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. If, if you had a magic wand, Neil, and you were able to change the way that people receive financial advice in the UK, mm. what, what would be 
the first major thing that you would seek to change? I would, <laughs> I would turn the, I would turn, I would make the entire process utterly human centric. And, and I know that's a buzzword. Uh, uh, it's a bit of a, I nearly swore then. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a really strange phrase. But what I mean by that is I believe that financial services, and I'm, and I'm massively generalizing here, so forgive me, but I believe that financial services is process-driven first, mm. human-centric second. In other words, we, have to, we go through all of the tick boxes, all the compliance stuff, then we start to engage with the human being. And let's be honest, even when we do that, a know-your-client questionnaire doesn't actually get to know your client at all. Mm. It, knows, it gets to know their name and their address and their national insurance number and all of that rubbish. It does not get to know the client. So that's misnamed to mm. start with. Mm. Um, so what I would do is I would make I would design a process whereby all of the stuff we know we need to do, all of the onboarding stuff is done and it's kind of done pre any meeting. It's so, you know, Ruth, you're gonna become my client. We're gonna meet in two weeks' time. Before then, I have a couple of tasks for you to do. I need you to log on to this website and just give us your name, your national insurance number, your bank, all the stuff that we need. Yeah. When you come into my office, what I'm going to talk about is you today. I'm going to explore the journey you've been on in life. I'm going to ask you questions about your relationships. I'm going to ask you your relationship with money. I'm going to ask you who you want to become, your dreams, your aspirations. I'm not going to talk about goals because that's a different conversation and another soapbox for me. But what I want to do is I want to explore you as a human being. And I want to understand where I, through superhuman skills like empathy and trust, can help you become a better person. Now, as part of that, I'm going to, un there is a technical aspect to it, but I'm never going to talk about my technical skills. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm, mm -hmm. I'm never going to put up a chart in a meeting room and show you how clever I am at deciphering the FTSE 100. What I am going to do, though, is have conversations with you and keep them brief about certain aspects of that journey. For example, your investments that are going to allow you to have the financial life that you want. But I'm not going to major on them. I'm always going to major and focus on you as a human being. And all of the other stuff, the problem is, Ruth, that all of the stuff I've just kind of alluded to, the fund management, the investment, the stock picking, you know, we, we put that at the core. Mm. And then put the human around the outside of that. Yeah. And it's the wrong way around. Yeah. All of the stuff I've talked about just sits on the periphery of helping a human being flourish. Yeah. Helping another human being thrive. Helping another human being be who they want to be. How they get there. The detail of that. Most people really don't care about. Mm. They really don't care. They, you know, Some people do. Of course they do. Naturally inquisitive people do. But overall, people just want to know that you know, there's a brilliant phrase that, you know, pe people don't care what you know until they know that you care. Mm -hmm. And and we spend far too long trying to shove down their throats what we know mm. at the detriment of showing them that we care. So if I had my magic wand, I would invert the circle, if that's even the right phrase. And I would put the human right in the middle. And everything else I would push to the sidelines because it's not as important as we think it is. Amen. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I and you know, you you're a great contributor to the initiative for financial well-being of, of mm. which I've recently joined the board, which fills me with huge excitement because 
um, both in my previous firm, The Red House and Paradigm Norton, I were, were you know, I, I feel we're at a, a flexion point and that I'm on a mission that sounds very similar to what you've described, Neil, whereby, mm. you know what, I, I, I'd like to challenge many of the people out within the profession, within the industry in which we work, call it financial advice, call it financial planning, to just go that step further. We know mm. you've mastered the tools, such as you spoke about with fund management, investment wrappers, tax planning, etc. Now let's bring that focus purely onto the human beings and really explore what people want from life, not just the the showreels. I've heard you speak about um, people living their lives for people's Instagram yeah. showreels. That's right. I think such that we forget what we do really want because we it's easier just to kind of copy what we see. Um, yeah, yeah, that's 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 right. But but equally, Ruth, you know this phrase I used earlier: better conversations about the things that matters. Mm. Let me just let me just use those first two words: better conversations. Yeah. We have a tendency as a, as a species to focus when we engage with other human beings to focus on the positive stuff. Is this easier, right? Mm. It's 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 an easier conversation. It's it's positive. It's buoyant, etc. So it's easier for me as a financial planner to say to you you know what do you want to do describe your dreams where do you find joy and and for us to have a 45 minute conversation about that it's more difficult for me to say to you what don't you want to do tell me about what scares you mm. where where do you experience tribulation you know those are darker conversations but they are the they are kind of the the, the other side of the coin and what we do is we tend to explore happily, and I would argue completely out of balance, the positive side of people's lives without understanding the, the darker, um, more difficult side. You know, it's the, it's the yin and yang, mm. if you like, if yeah. you use that kind of Chinese, Chinese idea. You know, so for me, go, almost going back to your magic wand question, I would also say, I would wave my wand and say to financial planners, Please start engaging with people about the things that we typically try to avoid. Because once you understand a person's life story, it gives you, um, it puts you in a much better position to understand their money story. And if you're not exploring the first or the former, then you're making your job at understanding the money story all that much harder. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea of the yin and yang. And uh, and yes, to explore people's fears. I think you're right. You can sometimes elicit much more valuable learnings about people and, and ultimately what's important to them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Neil, what does real success look like to you? I love that. You asked some great questions, Ruth. Um, <laughs> it's success is a, such a loaded word as well. Um, <laughs> You know, I've been doing my own thing for a long time now. And one thing that I'm not doing it for is to get rich. Mm -hmm. um, at, fund, at, at Shaping Wealth, we have this, um, we have one model in essence, which is funded contentment for everybody. And funded contentment is the ability to underwrite a life that is meaningful to you. So it's not about rich, which is just the accumulation of more. Mm. It's about being wealthy. It's about being able to live the life that you want to live and, 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 and being able to underwrite that. So let me, let me tell you a really quick story to mm. illustrate this point. Before I moved back up to the Northeast, which temporarily, um, I lived and 
we'll move back to the Isle of Wight. And the pace of life there is amazing. And I, I just love being there by the sea, which is what makes me happy anyway. I remember one day, so this must have been four, four maybe five years ago. Um, my wife and I, and our little dog, Archie, we went and sat on the beach as the sun was going down. And we had our little portable barbecue next to us. I had a glass of red wine in my hand, a couple of burgers on the barbecue. Me and Sandy and Archie just sat watching the sun going down. It was warm weather. And in that moment, the, the feeling I had was so, so strong. Mm. I thought there is no amount of money in the world that could buy this feeling from me now. It was the first time I think in my life I've been able to recognize contentment. I was utterly content. I, you know, and, and this, I mean, it's a morbid phrase to use, but I could have died in that moment and I would have died a happy man. Yeah. Because it was just everything I needed in my life was, was around me. And it made me think, I don't need money. Uh, sorry, I don't need a, a lot of money to, to have this type of experience. Mm. So I don't need to gather. I don't need a bigger car, a bigger house, another watch, a, a better whatever, whatever. Mm. It was in that moment that I understood for me that actually with Sandy and Archie and the, the experience around me, I felt in that moment, like I was the wealthiest man alive. You know, it, it was, it was just, it was, the feeling was, was palpable. And so I started to figure out, Oh, this is what contentment feels like different to happiness. Yeah. This is what, this is a, this is what contentment feels like. And so to, to your question, initially, when I started my businesses, I thought success was, selling a business for 10 million, 20 million, 50 million pounds. It's not about that at all. Yeah. Success for me, is, uh, it's changed. And, and now it's about two things. One, affording me or, or uh, giving me the ability to underwrite a life that's meaningful, mm -hmm. one. And second, it's about me leaving a mark or a legacy, if you like. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you think of, I'm sure you're aware of the starfish parable, um, Tell the, us. It, 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 the starfish parable, great, great parable. Guy walking down a beach. In the distance, he can see someone walking um, up from the shoreline into the sand, picking things up, going back to the sea, throwing them in the sea, and repeat, repeat, repeat. And he's wondering, I wonder what this guy's doing. And he walks down, and he realizes when he gets there that the tide has brought in hundreds of starfish, and the tide's gone out, the sun's come up, and the starfish are, are dying. And he's picking them up one by one and throwing them back into the sea to save their lives. And he says to the guy, what are you doing? And he goes, I'm trying to save the, the starfish. And he goes, but look at them. There's hundreds of them. You're not going to make a difference. And he holds his hand out and he shows them a starfish. And he says, it makes a difference to this one. Mm. And when I read that parable, that became a guiding light for me in business. I don't need to change the world, Ruth. Mm. But if I can leave a legacy if i can make a material change or, or have a material impact sorry on another human being's life and allow them the opportunity to live a life that's meaningful that for me is success well yes 
uh, you, you've totally got me with that vision of success. I was on the beach with you and Sandy smelling the burgers and the, and the yeah. sea salt. Beautiful. I can really put myself in that position and absolutely understand what you mean. And a word you used, I remember um, a client a number of years ago coming in and um, she started to speak about the, the C word. Mm. And of course she meant content and you know, uh, c content is one of those words as I've grown older, I, I have reframed from being, oh, well, if you're just content, you're not really, you haven't really arrived, you're not really experiencing mm -hmm. true uh, happiness. I now get it in the same way as you've described that being content is, is perhaps the state of being to, to aspire to. Um, yeah, it is. And you know what, Ruth, and I, and and please forgive me for telling this story and I don't, I, and I'm trying, I don't want to bring the conversation down, but this illustrates a really important point. Mm. When my mum was in the last five weeks of her life, mm. she, and, and she, my mum died of a, a brain tumor, but she had three different cancers, but the brain tumor eventually took her. And about the, the week five before she died, she was in a bed, mm. a, a hospital bed, but in her, in her house, um, she, she, she died at home. And, she was awake and she was chatty and all that type of stuff, although she was declining. And in the living room was my dad, my sisters, and a couple of my mum's um, grandchildren. And, and we have a, a, a weird sense of humour as a family. So we were just making fun of stuff and giggling and laughing. And my mum was in a bedroom and she could hear this. And knowing she was in the final straight, mm -hmm. you know, she, yeah. this was the final furlong for her. She was sat there and she was smiling. And, and I, I said to her, mum, I'll see you later. I'll pop back in the morning. And, and I could see her smiling. She said, see you, see you later, son. Love you. And, mm -hmm. and, and I looked at her and I went, are you okay? And she, and she said, I am. I'm happy and content. And it absolutely floored me. Completely floored me. I went and sat in the car and I was thinking, what the hell? What? How? Yeah. She, she, she's dying. She knows she's dying. How can she ever, ever find those words? And what I realized was, Every single thing, like, like me on the beach with Sandy and Archie and, the, and the, the, the view and all of that, for her, everything that was important to her life was within two meters of where she was. And that, for her, made her completely content. Yeah. And, 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 and it, was, it was just, uh, I mean, God, I learned a lot from, from her passing. Uh, you know, and, and that was just one of those lessons of, it's not about trying to find happiness, which is this fleeting emotion. It's not about that. It's about figuring out who you want to be, being truthful to yourself and finding a way to underwrite that life and just live the life you want. And to you know, finish off with a phrase of my mom's, that was a famous phrase she always said, life's not a rehearsal. Mm. This is it. Yeah. And, and, and we just, I think living by that mantra is wise, wise, they're wise words. She sounds like she was a very wise woman. Neil, um, she was a wise. She was a wise woman. Yeah, <laughs> she really was. Gosh, thank you for sharing that. But that really moving story. I could feel myself getting a bit of a lump in my throat, actually. But 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 thank you. It's uh, it 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 kind of I think brings starts to bring us to a close really very nicely about what what money and contentment and life yeah. is really all about. Yeah. Um, forgive me for 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 changing the the tone in maybe a frivolous way. Neil, but I love to ask my guests, yeah, yeah, just as a bit of lightheartedness, what's been your best buy that's been under thirty pound in the last year, and and why? Oh, okay. 
I, I didn't pay the £30, but it was a gift that was given to me that was under £30 um, by my brother-in-law. And he bought me a selfie stick. Now, bear with me, right? <laughs> oh, bear with me. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the last time I took a selfie, right? I'm not, I'm not a teenager. Like, it's not, and it's, it's just not something I typically do. But this selfie stick is from, it's from the US. It extends, it creates, it, it creates a tripod and you can put your iPhone on there and it connects, connects through Bluetooth. Now, the amount of conference calls or Zoom calls I do when I'm kind of moving around, I often find myself on my iPhone holding my iPhone, yeah. my hand, and you can and, and you get arm aches and stuff like that. And you try and sit it down and it falls down. The selfie stick has been a revelation because I put my iPhone into the little holder, open the tripod, sit it on my desk, connect my Bluetooth headphones, problem solved it's been it's been a brilliant 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 purchase and yes i have taken several selfies just to make sure that it does do what it says it said it, it you know was built to do so, i'm pleased uh, to hear that yeah. yeah it's great it's a great little gadget so you know i like it well um, yeah I, I can see i can see the need for it as well i yeah brilliant i love that and and that you've used it to take photos of yourself that's uh... of course, of course. me and the, me and it, it's not me and sandy either it's usually me and archie oh, of course um, our little dog you know holding the selfie stick out catching the pair of us with a sea a seascape behind us you love, know. It. love it good and neil gosh there's so many kind of kind of insightful um and words of wisdom that you've already imparted on us throughout this podcast but if you had one money pearl of wisdom that you think would be a useful piece of practical money wisdom to leave our listeners with what yeah. what might that be it is it, i i've i have one main one and i've used this main one for years and it just because i know it works i'm a big fan of um automated apps from a behavioral perspective mm -hmm. so i i invested years ago smaller tiny amount of money um in a company called chip chip and what chip does is you link it to your bank account and every week it goes in and takes a tiny amount of money out of your bank account. In, in essence, it chips away at your money mm. and um, it puts it into a savings account. And the only way you can see it is by logging online and stuff like that. And, and I, I, from a behavioral science perspective, it's what's known as a commitment device. If you, if you're rubbish at saving, it, 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 it takes that uh, kind of, it takes that task on for you. You don't need to think about it. It's automated. I used it for, I, I, I linked my bank account, let it chip away. I get text messages. Oh, you're saving £23.65 or you're saving £37.96. You know, it's, it's always yeah. random. Yeah. And then like a year later, you log on and you've saved £1,800 and you go, what? Yeah. What? How? And I've always said to many, many people, if you are not amazing at saving, stop trying to save five grand in one hit or three grand in one hit. Set up a bank account and chip away at your money. Take a little bit at a time because the cumulative effect of that gives you decent savings. And then if you can automate that to start moving X of that into a, a maybe a, a long-term savings plan, like a, a pension or an investment, whatever, um, then even you know more the better so for me ruth the answer to your question is 
as soon as you start earning money, don't get into the mindset that you have to save lots, just chip away little bits at a time. And the cumulative impact of that will make you a better saver. Perfect. So small amounts, chip away, have it automated from your bank account, um, nudge it up possibly as and when you can, and yep. um, link it to an investment fund of, of some description if possible. Yeah. And when you look at your bank and you start, and you like I did, you go, oh my God, £1,800. Then, and I'm not going to get into the neuroscience of this, but that kind of that dopamine hit yeah. that you get yeah. of, oh my God, I've saved £1,800. Wow. And if you have an element of restraint and you don't just go, I'm going to blow it, <laughs> then, then you start to get, you start to create this good feeling linked to a habit. Yeah. And that's how good habits form. So, you know, yeah. Perfect. Chip, chip, chip away. Keep chipping away. And I'm really sorry we haven't had more time to delve into the fascinating work that you've done around behaviours. I am going to put into the uh, notes to this podcast a link to, I loved your podcast series, Bite Size Behaviour Podcast. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Really well worth listening to. There's some fascinating stuff and you can find yourself going, oh yeah, I do that. Oh yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that. So <laughs> it's really revealing. So yeah. I'll definitely link to that. Um, Neil, you've been a fantastic guests i've really enjoyed our conversations we we oh, could have you. spoken for absolutely ages um but um i really appreciate you taking the time to do so and maybe get you back some of the time and and delve into some of these behavioral uh, science things a little bit more would be i would love to uh, and we've got you don't need to ask me twice me talking about behavior any day <laughs> any day of the week Ruth. Fantastic. Uh, thank you thank, thank you for having me on um it's been great thanks really neil great. i look forward to speak, seeing you soon bye for now What a beautiful conversation that was. For me, there were a whole heap of takeaways. But one sentence that Neil said that I keep playing over in my mind, he said, we're not irrational, we're not wrong, we're not emotional, we're human beings. So true. Now, before you go, let me just tell you about my next guest, a wonderful woman called Kathy Harrison, who is the founder and CEO of The Verve Group. Kathy is a woman on a mission to challenge the narrative within financial services and to make financial services a wholly more inclusive and far less stuffy place to work. She's actually the woman who interviewed Stephen Bartlett at the inaugural Verve conference before he became a runaway success on Dragon's Den. Be prepared for a story of graft of determination, sprinkled with loads of humour and laughter from Kathy and myself. I'll look forward to seeing you then. Bye for now. So that's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. If you did, I'd really appreciate if you could take a couple of minutes to go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform to subscribe, rate, and review Money Expresso. This helps more people find the podcast so we can get more people thinking differently about their money and life. If you've got any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of the matters discussed, or life and money generally, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Ruth Sturkey. Now, of course, the conversations with my guests are not intended as advice. My intention is merely to share our guests' money and life experiences to entertain, educate and inform you. Any form of investing involves risk and the value of your investments may go down as well as up. So please do speak with a financial planner before making any investments to make sure they're the right ones for you. Mm-hmm.